Blog Talk Radio. sound a little funny. I'm a little worn out. I had a wild weekend. Can't even begin to describe it. We're going to try, though, for a little while. I've got Cruiser Mail on the line with me, and we are going to talk a little bit about the Rundgren Radio Birthday Bash, etc. that happened this weekend that included a gig from Todd and Company, with the exception of Chasm, who was not there. But uh, let me tell you something. They did a fantastic job, and it was a great show. And we got guest Kevin Elman later on tonight. In about 10 minutes, he'll be calling in. Kevin, of course, was with Utopia, original Utopia, or one of the original Utopias anyway. It's hard to keep up with, isn't it? So we're going to talk to him about that a lot and kind of figure out what's going on. Maybe talk about uh, some hard-to-find information on, like, Dave Mason. You never know. Cruiserman, how you doing? Well, Doug, I'm afraid I sound worse than you do, but that just means it was a really great, great weekend. And uh, thank you very much for even having the idea for Rundgren Radio in the first place. Otherwise, we might not have all ended up converging upon Vegas. I don't know about that. That was kind of the excuse to have the party. It was all about getting there and getting to see Todd. And what a perfect weekend for it, you know. It was You had the Sergeant Pepper deal on Friday night, which was a lot of fun. Then you had the Tubes on Saturday night, which was really fun. It was hysterical. Wasn't that crazy? Yeah, I loved it. Loved yeah. it. So we had the tubes going on, and Michelle and Todd were at the show. Michelle, at one point, and Rachel jumped on top of like a speaker box or something, and the security made them uh, step down. Oh, and darn uh, they had no idea that Michelle was, uh, you know, once part of the tube. So later on, she got back up there for the final song and did a little singing. Yeah. What was hey, that Doug. Song? Hey, Doug, turn yeah. on the chat room, okay? It's on. Just tell everybody to reset. Okay. I got that chat going on. All right, everybody, reset. <laughs> uh, there you go. Re- reload or whatever. Yeah, because I'm not seeing it. There we go. All right, Michael Max in there. So they figured it out. <clears throat> All right, I'm not sure why that does that. But anyway, y'all have some fun in the chat. We'll try to catch up with you here and there. Maybe you can have some questions for Mr. Elman. So what was the song that Michelle got up there? Do you remember uh, from the tubes? Talk to you later. Was that it? Uh, might have been. Was it I the encore? It. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think it was. I think that was the song. So, what did you think Friday night about the Sergeant Pepper deal? 
well, I don't even think I'm alone in this. I know good, good and well, and it was a fact that our Todd stole that show. It was all Todd. It was great. <laughs> Todd was hysterical. He was having fun out. I know Todd stole the show from some of the others, but Jesse Grass was on fire as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course, all, all the players yeah. were wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesse did some really crazy stuff with the guitar, and it was uh, really fun to watch. But Todd was a hoot. It was uh, almost like going to a a full musical or something. I think and they were having a good time playing music that they, you know, all grew up with. They all loved it. Sure. And we got to see a couple songs from Todd. He didn't do Bang on the Drum, which he had done on the previous Sgt. Pepper shows, but we did. Uh, he did. I saw the light, and what was the other one? Um. <laughs> Come on. I don't remember. Man, uh, you would fail the trivia test today. Too many Diet Cokes, trust me. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I didn't like about that show, and that was they had camera Nazis there. And, I mean, all you have to do is just have a camera in your pocket and be getting your wallet out, and they'd come over and, you know, put a Gestapo flashlight right in your face. Yeah. Hated that. They were way ridiculous. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. None of us have any record of of that night. <laughs> Not many of us have any memories either. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a pretty good bit of memories when you think about after show stuff with <clears throat> a Bobice meltdown, but we won't get into that on the show tonight. But it was a uh, it was quite a great weekend with three shows in a row that were fun to go to. Plenty of Todd and Michelle hanging out. Mary Lou was there. Of course, Jesse Prairie, Rachel. Rachel was a hoot. I don't think I've seen Rachel be that active on stage, and I've seen several of the Arena Tours shows, and she was just having a blast on Sunday night. Yeah. They came up to the edge of the stage a few times and played back-to-back, and they were having a lot of fun. And, um, of course, Todd came into the audience, which was really special. I have not seen that. I'm sure he's probably done it before. I had never seen that. And it was during Black Mariah, and he was still just really tearing it up on guitar and walking around, and people went nuts. And, you know, that was one of the things that was unusual or, or unique about that show compared to most. And then, of course, if you heard the start of the show, I played a little bit of The Wheel. That's an old version uh, from uh, the Utopia days. But Todd and the band, electric guitar version of The Wheel, it was, and it was fantastic. Made my night. Yeah, we made we we all pulled Doug up near the front because we knew really that was for Doug. I was putting on the hands pretty hard that I wanted to see the wheel, and they did the wheel. And I tell you, it was the reaction of the audience to that song, and then followed it up with just one victory. Was I don't think you could ask for two better choices for a group of hardcore Todd fans that are having a great time. And you're wrapping up a show that's been fantastic from the get-go. And then everybody's singing along those two songs. It was just something special. That's something I'll never forget. Well, and did you notice that the band did a slightly different take on I Saw the Light that night? Yes. Yes, that was good, too. It was kind of old school, but it was an, it was very fresh. I, I enjoyed that part. That was probably my favorite part, actually. Well, really. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people getting into that, too. Yeah, a lot of hands waving, et cetera fun stuff yeah. it was the, the the regular set list they've been doing the full arena album you know love and action open my eyes and then all of the arena songs those type of things and then uh the wheel was replaced couldn't i just tell you which was perfectly fine with me 
of course. And Todd did the two covers that some people are tired of and some people love, the Lunatic Fringe and when the um, the Wall song, Walls came mm-hmm. down. Um, so it was right there on the money. Great yeah. show. And we had cake, and, and the cakes were everything we thought they would be. They were gorgeous. Yeah, a great bakery called Freed's Bakery over in Las Vegas. It's pretty famous. They've done a lot of cakes for some big names. You can, can see it on their website. What's that? They, they tasted good, too. I, I, by the time I got over the cakes, there was very little left. But what I got, I sort of scrounged up. I thought it was very good. Yeah, the cake was shaped like a guitar pick and was the green that Todd uses. And I had uh, you know, a um, facsimile, I guess you'd call it, autograph. They, they did a really nice job of, of doing. And then the other one was a, a white cake that had an 8x10 of Arena promo poster on it that was edible. And it looked perfect. I mean, it, those things looked really good. And the real treat was that after the show, Todd came out from backstage, sat down on a stool right by the cakes, and started cutting them up for people, cutting up pieces of cake and feeding everybody. It was a real treat. He, he hung out with a group for a good while. A lot of people got their pictures, you know, autographs, that type of thing. And we had a rifle. That was another unique thing. And some people won, you know, things like a Hermit of Mikala autographed album, an arena autograph poster by the band, you know, things like that. Somebody Who won the uh, the T-shirt that Todd had worn? I do not know. I can't remember. But it was fun having Michelle draw the raffle tickets. Michelle and O.C. Sherry got on stage, and they were drawing raffles, so that was going on. Just a good time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I want to thank uh, Darnell and Steve uh, and you and me. May as well thank myself, too. I think we were a pretty good team, and... Uh, I want to do it again next year. I think we should. And also, of course, Kathy Stoya uh, pitched in and helped out on Friday night. She put together a party at Simon, which was unreal. Super nice place, private party. Denny Lane came, Todd, Michelle, Prairie. Jesse Mary Lou were there as well. That's right. Uh, It was a lot of the other bands, some of the horn section and the bass player and the strings. It was quite a party. Yeah, Thankfully, Bo Bice did not show up. <laughs> I think some people would have gone redneck on him. I, I have a feeling. Bo Bice. All right. Well, we'll talk about that one day on the show, maybe, but not tonight. All right. So, if you want to see some pictures from the shindig we're talking about, just go to photobucket.com backslash tr vegas, and you'll be able to see it. No problem. Yeah, there's some good pictures that have already been uploaded, and I know there were. A couple of people that were going to stay in Vegas until today or tomorrow. So there will be more pictures, I'm sure, added. Oh, yeah. Um, Hillage is just starting to add his, and he's a great photographer, uh, Tim Snyder. So they're they're going on there now. But don't leave the show in the chat room. Let's wait till after it's over. They're not going anywhere. So, all right, Mel, that was great. I enjoyed talking to you about the Vegas gig this weekend. And Kevin has joined us, and we're going to talk to him about some utopia stuff. You're welcome. I to hope you don't mind. Room. I'm going to turn off the phone because uh, this is... This is killing me. I'm going to be much, much uh, worth a lot more if I'm just in the chat room tonight, okay? <laughs> well, we All hope right. you get better. Have a good show. Hi, Kevin. See Hi, ya. how are you? <laughs> Not very good, but oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> having fun. We'll talk later. All righty. All right, see you, Cruiser Mail. Cruiser Mail, we had a big party, Kevin, over in Vegas this weekend celebrating the show's first year, and uh, we had a uh, sort of a private Todd gig, I guess you'd call it, and then we did some other concerts and stuff, and people were losing their voice, including me. I, I don't know if it's allergies or screaming or what it is, but anyway. Probably a little of both. 
We'll, we'll try to survive. Yes, absolutely. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. I appreciate you being on. It's a pleasure. I've had some requests for you for a while and was having trouble tracking you down, and finally somebody helped me out, and here we are. Terrific. All right. So I believe that you may be – I've had lots of musicians on the show, but I think you may be the first TV star that I've had on, too. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you on the show when uh, Todd and Chasm were on. That was a while back, wasn't it? I think that's almost about seven or eight years now. Yeah, yeah. You got to do a little drawing. This was, was it, did you practice some, or you just get back there and start playing? Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, I had been doing the uh, CNBC show for quite a while, and one of the producers there discovered that I had a mu- mu- musical background, and they got it into their head they were going to have a, a little contest to see if the viewers could guess who their uh, who the drummer was that was on their show. And I hadn't played in years. You know, probably 20 years I hadn't played the drums. And uh, so leading up to that, I, you know, practiced as much as I could, but uh, it's not quite the same as getting up on TV and playing live. <laughs> well, it like you did a fine job. Thank you very much. Were you pleased with it? I was reasonably pleased with it. It was really that event that motivated me to get back into playing. Uh, as a result of that show, uh, you pro- I'm sure you know Moogie Klingman. Oh, yeah. He contacted me and, and uh, asked me if I would join his band, and we started playing. And that really got me back into music. And I played with him for a few years. We did a couple of recordings. And then I started a band of my own. And, you know, I'm still actively playing. So you have a band of your own now. Are you doing anything with Mookie? I mean, Moogie anymore? I haven't done anything recently with him. But, you know, if the opportunity arose, I would. Yeah. Moogie's still doing some stuff over in New York. We noticed a lot of gigs he does. And every now and then, he'll get together with Stooky from Naz. And they do some fun stuff together. So... I had done a a, a Stooky, uh, you know, a Naz. They called it Naztopia. We had done <laughs> yeah. a, a gig with Stooky, and then uh, we did some Utopia stuff. Fun, absolutely. So that got you back into. It. You just, uh, you know, hadn't played in twenty years. Now all of a sudden you're way back into it. And had you seen Todd in a while? When uh, I haven't seen him since that show. No. That well, was when it. he came on to that show, had you seen him before for I a while? I haven't seen him in twenty five years. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty surprising. Isn't that wild. Yeah, well, that was that's probably was fine. And I guess the uh, the topic of the the financial part of the show was uh, financial planning for career changers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they figured I knew a little bit about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. So it's been a while since you've seen him. We had a, the same kind of thing. We've had Moogie on the show here, and we had Frog Lobato on uh, pretty, fairly recently, and the Sales Brothers called in, and wow. he had not heard from them. They had not heard from each other, and It'd probably been over 20 years. So what is Frog doing? Frog is over in France, and he is involved in music still. He's, he's, I don't really know if he's playing as much as just kind of uh, producing, directing. A, right. It's a, let's see, how should I describe it? it, it he, he brings together different religions, and, and uh, they sing together, I guess, for a unified message is what he's trying to do. Huh. And it's uh, it's pretty big time over there. So That's that was great. one of the things he was doing. He had a, he's <laughs> he's done a lot of things since Utopia. <laughs> wow. But um, he was he was he was fun. He was fun to have on and Moogie, of course, as well. So uh, and the Sales Brothers always a riot. Which I'm going to ask you some questions because that of course was uh, I'm more I'm a younger Todd fan, so I wasn't in the loop, and I've always tried to figure some of these things out because there were so many changes with Utopia. But okay, the 
I thought the Sales Brothers were on the, the first album, but I'm seeing that that's not the case. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the first Utopia album is the one that uh, I was on with Moogie and uh, M. Frog Labatt and um, I guess John Siegler and Ralph Shuckett. Right. So maybe they were just touring with him first. Maybe that I was think the they had done some live touring, but I'm pretty sure that was the, the first Utopia album was the one that uh, called Utopia. Right. That is the first one, and that, that is what they have listed as you guys on there. So it's then there was Dave Mason. Do you remember uh, much about Dave Mason, or was he around? I was not around when he was around. Not around, okay. Unless I'm, maybe I'm confusing him with um, he replaced uh, Fra M. He was a keyboardist, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually, I'm sorry, I did one tour with him, and we we I think we did some recording together. Mm-hmm. So those good times for you back then. It was a great time. It was we we had a lot. We did a lot of great music, and uh, you know a lot of it was pretty groundbreaking. Yes, you still there's still prog lovers that have, talk about that album and have it all over the internet. So you guys are popular in several different genres. I guess it was it's it's a lot of fun to uh, check out the Utopia albums and look at all the different groups that Todd had. Of course, he was the the guy that stuck with it through the whole time, but there's a lot of changes and yep. different setups, and um, we like trying to figure out what all happened and who all recorded and all that good stuff, so it's been fun, but I'm sure we're going to talk more about Utopia tonight and maybe get some calls from people that are interested in that kind of thing sure. as well. Call in number 646-716-9262, but let's talk about what you're currently doing now, if you don't mind. I'd like to know a little bit more about this band you have and what else is going on, and if you're, uh, maybe we'll even talk some finance. Sure. Well, one of the issues that was going on in the original Utopia was the, you know, the sort of pull between progressive rock and, you know, sort of pop rock and soul. And, you know, depending on the day of the week, you know, we would be really trying to do more fusion jazz type things or we'd try to be doing something more groove oriented. And uh, I think after that band, you know, the band tended to become a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more, you know, sort of pop rock oriented. And one of the things that I always wanted to do was have a real kind of funky R&B band. So the last, I guess probably the last five years, I've had a, uh, I guess, a, you know, it's really a cover band, but, a, you know, a funky R&B band with horns and, uh, you know, really tight arrangements and solid grooves. Uh, so that's what I've been doing the last few years. And then recently I've had the urge to kind of go in a more bluesy kind of direction. So I'm getting ready to organize, uh, maybe using some of the same people, but doing a, a smaller, kind of a funky blues type group. So how many people were in your funky R&B group? Well, that was a nine-piece band. Wow. <laughs> it's got to be pretty hard to tour with that big a group. Well, On that's one of the... Just putting it together, yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of the issues that, uh, you know, it takes a lot of organization, and I was the guy organizing everything. <laughs> And unless you're playing enough to keep a band like that together all the time, then you're always re- you're always replacing you know using a sub for something, and so then you're always constantly rehearsing the same old material, and it's hard to really you know move on and grow. So that's why I'm thinking that I'm going to try to do something on a smaller scale, so it won't require as much organization, and we can spend more time you know playing and making music. Mm-hmm. Now with the funky R&B, it was just covers. I don't suppose y'all did any CDs or anything. 
Well, we have a couple of live things, but we don't have anything that we've published. But I probably could, you know, it's probably something I should pull together and, uh, you know, put on a website somewhere. So, what are a few examples of some of the songs on the set list for that group? Well, we one of I think my favorite song with that group was uh, "Ants in My Pants" by James Brown. <laughs> and we did some average white band, and you know Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Otis Redding, you know everything from kind of the early '60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we called the band NJRB R&B, mm-hmm. and uh, you know so it was kind of a '60s R&B band. So I got a chance to kind of go back to my roots and uh, reestablish them. Uh-huh. So now you're going to lean more towards blues. And how many people you think would be in that kind of band? I want to try to keep it at four people. So Mm. I figure with three phone calls I can get a rehearsal organized. (laughs) Are you going to try to create some new music or mainly do some covers? Well, with this I'd like to do some new music. And if it's, you know, the guys that I'm thinking of, uh, I think you know they 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 write, so uh, we'll be able to do some of our own material. Mm-hmm. And where do y'all where do you think you mostly be doing shows? Is it uh, you have a lot of blues places around town, or? Well, there you know I've been trying to connect with uh, the various blues groups, you know, uh, you know like uh, Yahoo groups that, uh, and the, you know I've got a list of all the clubs in the sort of tri-state area that do blues. And, uh, you know, once I have something together, I'll start booking it. Awesome. Sounds like a good show. I love blues. That'd be great. So you still doing some TV? I'm still doing some TV. Uh, you know, that's when my daytime hat as a, uh, we call I call myself a wealth manager. And that's a complete, in, in some ways, you know, it's a completely different kind of life. You know, I'm helping, you know, helping people manage their money. Uh, but what's interesting, the simil- what's interesting is that the music, you know, really is a great training for all kinds of things that most people don't realize. Because uh, the thing that you learn from playing music with other people is it's almost like you become a mind reader. You know, you have to really listen and really open yourself up and interact with other people, and that's just something that's terrific for you know almost anything. You know, and, and so many people think that they want their children to play sports to learn teamwork, but in some ways, you know, playing music in a band is an almost even better way to learn teamwork because, sure. you know, it just involves so many on so many levels that you have to kind of communicate with somebody else. So I think that really taught me how to, you know, listen to other people and interact and read their body language and, you know try to feel what they're feeling and those types of things. Mm-hmm. So you say wealth manager, you you mainly dealing with you know retirement funds or? Well, but I'm of... dealing mostly with uh, family businesses. Mm-hmm. And the biggest issue is, you know, passing the business from either father to son or mother to daughter or father to daughter. So it's not just money issues, but also all the human issues involved with, uh, you know, the father's passing on the business to the son, and he doesn't want to give up control, and of course the son wants to do things his way. So there are a lot of issues other than just the money. Mm-hmm. So I get, I'm mostly dealing with self-made business owners, and they're, you know, they're interesting people, and uh, trying to help them with all those issues, and, and some of it's just purely managing money, but then some of it's all estate planning and business succession planning, and 
you know, you really get involved with the family and you stay close to them over time. Many of them become friends. And uh, interestingly enough, when I first got into this business, I never told anybody I was a musician. Because I figured, well, you know, how does that prepare you for being a wealth manager? But, you know, when I started playing again, I started inviting people to my shows and telling people what I do. And I found that, you know, people were actually very excited about it and very accepting of it and, um, you know, would want, wanted to come hear the music. And so, and it, of course, made me a little different than the average guy in the money business. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there may be some other money business folks that are doing hobbies like that, a little music. I don't know. That's well, there's I, I some, to, but not a lot. <laughs> yeah, probably not a lot. Yeah. So, how did you get into the wealth management part? Though, how did you get trained for that? Well, when I left Todd, I mean, uh, I guess the thing that that uh, happened to me is that I guess I really didn't like being on the road that much. I loved playing music, and what was ironic is as the band got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we, instead of playing, you know, small theaters, now we're playing big stadiums, and everything was, you know, unionized. I remember one day I went to go tune up my drum set before a show, and the union manager said, "Oh, I'm sorry, you can't touch that drum set." I said, "What do you mean I can't touch that drum set? It's my drum set." He says, "Yeah, but you're not a member of the union." I said, "It doesn't matter. It's my, they're my drums. I got to tune them. What are you going to do? Have the state have this, this, the truck driver tune my drums for me?" So I'm sorry, you know, you're not a member of this union, you can't touch the drums. So I said, this is crazy. I mean, you know, how does this, what does this have to do with music? So it, you know, I, I guess I started to become a little disillusioned with, with the life, and I got married, and I had kids, and I wanted to live a more normal life. So after one of the tours, I decided that was it, I'm not going to tour anymore. And I hung around the city, and I, you know, I would do commercials. And I remember playing on a McDonald's commercial and a State Farm commercial, and you know, the money was good, but I—that's not music. You know, it wasn't that much fun. And one day, my father called me up, and he owned a chain of restaurants. Which I don't know if anybody remember. It was originally called Steak and Brew, and then ultimately changed into Beefsteak Charlie's, which was kind of big in this area. And the big thing about his restaurant, he was giving away free beer, wine, and sangria in the restaurant. So at the time, you could buy a steak for four ninety nine and get all the beer, wine, and sangria that you could drink, which was a pretty good deal. Yeah, you can't even get beer for $5 much anymore. Exactly. So, so as a result, nobody would come into the bar. So he said to me, look, I have, I have 70 restaurants, and none of them, I can't sell any liquor in the bar because I'm giving away in the restaurant. Maybe you can like come with, come join me and hire some bands and do some promotion and we'll put in sound and light and stages and maybe we can turn them into sort of like discotheques. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'll try it. So I joined my father and I started booking bands in all these restaurants and I'd have to put in sound systems and lighting systems and I had to advertise. And I discovered I had a, I had a talent for business. And for marketing and advertising and organizing things. And I didn't know that I had that ability. And I ended up staying with my father's business for 13 years. And I went back to school and I studied business and I studied accounting and I ran a business. And I was, you know, thoroughly involved with running this pretty large company. And uh, one day, ultimately, my father and I kind of had a falling out and I ended up leaving. 
And for a while, I kind of bounced around trying to figure out what to do. And I figured I'd offer consulting for restaurants. And then I kind of noticed that the restaurant guys needed help financially, and they were willing to pay for it. So initially, I started offering financial planning for restaurants. I went back to school, became a certified financial planner. And that was my business, and I ended up getting endorsed by a couple of restaurant associations. And little by little, I'd go from restaurants, and then I'd meet a lawyer, and I'd meet an accountant, and I'd meet you know some other kind of business. And one day, I got a call from CNBC, and they wanted somebody to come on their uh, mutual fund investor program. And I guess they had gone through you know one of the guidebooks. And I went on the show, and you know I guess I did a good job, and they kept inviting me back. I ended up doing, you know, well over 100 shows on CNBC. And that really got my business off the ground. People would call me, hey, I saw you on TV, can you help me out? And I ended up building, a, you know, a good practice that way. TV will do that for people. It really does. It's very powerful. So you're not doing that anymore? I, I do it, but not as, not as often as I did. I'm, now that I'm, I'm kind of busier taking care of clients, so I have to be more selective about when I go on. So I just select, you know, every now and then I'll go on and do a show. Well, you, you, it's a good resume, you know, discussion, the fact that you've been through a family business and have experienced that and working with your father if you're doing mostly business with those kind of entrepreneurs. so Exactly. That's exactly. a good story, so, yeah. That's something I understand. <laughs> yeah, and those you, you talk about putting those restaurants together, putting together sound and lights and all these kind of things for, for – Gigs is uh, very detailed and it's it's not easy. And I'm not an expert on. I I get people to help me out with that that are, and it's it just it can get very complicated. And there's a lot that goes into it. That a lot of people don't think about. You know, that show up for the show. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Well, that's really true. You know, putting on a a lot of behind the scenes effort. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing I found is that you know, interacting with musicians. You know, I mean, I, I knew what I was listening to, and I knew who I, you know, I, I understood what I was dealing with, and I, I treated them well, so they appreciated that. And it was, uh, you know, I met a lot of interesting guys and a lot of very talented musicians, and, uh, you know, it was definitely a good time. Yeah, perfect, Mary. So how tough was it to leave? I know you were probably ready to change lifestyle, but how tough is it, you know, like most people when they quit a job, even if they want to leave bad, it's still tough to go to the boss and say, you know what, I'm going in a different direction. Do you remember that experience when you left Utopia, what that was like? I do. I remember it very clearly. And, uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't I was 100% sure that it was the right thing. And uh, I was particularly, you know, challenged because uh, the first two years that we were on the road, I was in the back. And even though it was like an elevated platform, I was still way in the back. And just about the time that I was thinking maybe it's time to, you know, do a different kind of lifestyle, we changed the stage setup so that the drums were right in front. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, man, you are dumb. I mean, you know, you're going to be famous. If you stick around in this thing, you'll be famous because you'll be up front and you'll be featured. And, you know, you're really missing a great opportunity here. And I have to say, you know, I, even today, from time to time, I say to myself, you know, was that the right life decision? I mean, and you know, it's, in a lot of respects, I feel, you know, I've had a good life. Uh, you know, I've been more, I've been, I've had a stable life. I had a good family. I've, you know, spent a lot of time with my kids. And often when I meet other musicians, 
you know, I'm, I don't, I'm sure you know, it's a tough life, and especially if, especially if you're a traveling musician. And yep. I, I think I probably would have spent most of my life on the road. You know, I may not have had, you know, close relationships with my children, and I might have had, you know, other substance abuse problems or drinking problems, because what are you going to do? You're on the road in the middle of nowhere. What do you do? Mm-hmm. So, but on the other hand, I feel like had I continued to play at a high level, you know, I would have left a, a more, a, you know, a, a, a bigger and, and more influential body of work. You know, so sometimes I wonder, you know, when I'm ready to move, you know, leave this life, will I look back and say that was the right decision? Uh, you know, so it's not black and white. Right. Well, so do you like now going out and doing the funky R&B or blues gigs better than your day job as a wealth manager? Which one do you prefer? Well, it's interesting because every now and then I, I'll do a gig and people from work will come see me. And, you know, in some ways I'm happier. You know, in some ways it's, 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 more, it's, a, it's a certain part of me that doesn't come out at work. Uh, you know, it's very creative, it's very spontaneous, it's very free, it's a lot of fun. I mean, obviously it takes a lot of hard work to produce good music. You know, you've got to practice, you've got to rehearse, you can't just get on stage and goof around. You know, there's a lot, you know, most people don't realize how much structure there is in music. You know, it, it, uh, even though it might look like you're acting like a crazy rock musician, the truth of the matter is it's really, you know, you have to really be buttoned down. But uh, it's a lot of fun. And I would say nothing else in my life is as much fun. I mean, so that's the most fun that I have is playing music. Um, you know, but after a couple nights of doing gigs, I have to, you know, I say to myself, well, you know, I, I wouldn't mind going to sleep at, at a normal hour, and I wouldn't mind getting up so I can you know, see the day. So it's a, it's a challenge to try to figure out how to integrate, you know, music into your life in a way that fits, you know. Sure. Uh, it's not always a guarantee of, of uh, success regardless of talent. It's not always a guarantee. You know, a lot of it depends on who you get hooked up with and different kind of situations. And, uh, you know, you obviously when you made the move to go into what you're doing now, you you've been very successful with that, so. You never know with with rock and roll or whatever kind of band what's going to happen. Well, that's true, and you don't know. You know, I, I don't know too many guys who who could be on top for you know forty years. I mean, I had a pretty good run, but I don't think too many guys have more than a, a ten year run where they're really really hot or they're really doing everything they want to do. I mean, uh, you know, playing in a band with Todd and Utopia. I mean, that was terrific. It was terrific. I mean, you're you know, very talented musicians, and Todd was very, very talented. And, you know, there was a lot of room to be creative and stretch out. And, I mean, we, you know, anything I could think of that wasn't crazy, I mean, we could do. <laughs> you know? So what and, were the times like, Ben? You, you said you left and wanted to change your lifestyle. What, what kind of lifestyle do you think you were headed in if you would have stayed with the band? I mean, was it, was it starting to get wild? Was it a, a real rock and roll lifestyle like we hear about, or...? Had you not got to that point yet? I would have to say it was a real rock and roll lifestyle, yes. So, you know, I mean, and, and, and without going into, you know, detail, I would say I was a full participant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we do know some of those guys that were back there were pretty wild, especially the Frog. 
So, uh, yeah, yeah, all right. Enough said. We got that. Very nice. You know, so, but we used to, but we used to do, you know, five cities a week. Mm-hmm. One time we did a little video of what it was like to be on the road. Mm-hmm. And the whole video was inside airplanes, inside the airport, inside taxis and buses, backstage in the hotel. I mean, we never saw the sun. You know, it's just you know, get up, get on the plane, go to the gig, go to sleep, get up, get on the plane, go to the gig. You know, it was it was you know, people think it's just all crazy rock and roll. I mean, I mean, we had a lot of fun. I don't want to make it sound like we didn't, but you know, it was a grind. And, you know, it's definitely, you know, I mean, a, a lot of traveling with a, with a little bit of music in between. <laughs> yeah, I just can't imagine doing that, too, with a family like you, you ended up having. That would be rather difficult, I bet. Yeah, I mean, Especially when I was, to... the first couple of years, when I didn't have any kids, you know, it was it was great. I mean, I saw the world. I, I did everything I wanted to do. You know, it was great. Yeah. That's it's a lot different when you're younger and no family yet and all that. I bet going on the road is probably a blast. But then after a while, five days a week, if there's kids and marriage and everything else, it's got to be really difficult. So. Yeah, and I think everybody else eventually burned out on it too, yeah. which I think is one of the reasons why you know the band kept changing a little bit. <laughs> but I will say that the thing that was so great about it is, uh, you know, the the opportunity to you know innovate. Uh, I mean, I played in a lot of other bands where, you know, for instance, I was with Bette Midler for a while. And, you know, it was fun, but I was definitely a backup musician, and I'm definitely playing a part. And I was not, you know, featured in any way. But in Todd's band, you know, we were really, you know, a lot of the music was written by the members of the band, and even after the music was written, it would evolve. You know, so, well, you wouldn't be changing it every night, you know, every you know, if you play the same music every night, you know, you experiment a little bit to try to make the, you know, you you realize, okay, well, this section would sound a little bit better if I did it this way, or let me, I'm going to try something tonight at rehearsal and see if it sounds better this way. So the music was constantly evolving and growing, and you know, in most cases, improving because you'd try it and then you'd see if it, if the band liked it and if the audience liked it, and then if everybody liked it, you'd keep doing it. So the music kept growing. And some of the songs that we did, uh, for instance, like Utopia, I mean, that didn't start out anything like what it ultimately became. (laughs) And, you know, when we originally played it, it was just supposed to be almost like a classical bolero. And then as it evolved, I kept thinking, well, this doesn't sound, this is not, you know, I didn't like the beat that I was playing. So one day I got the idea to play something different. And you know, I kind of in, invented, you know, this kind of what I call the funky bolero. <laughs> and, you know, it happened on the road, and we kept doing it, and that became the beat. And it was, you know, kind of a, you know, I don't think anybody played a beat like that before. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I got a, you know, a lot of a lot of guys were using uh, synthesizers at the time. So I figured, well, you know, if, if Todd can use a synthesizer and, and Frog Labot can use a synthesizer. Why can't I? So I went out and I bought some pickups and I glued them to my drums and I took the pickups and I put it through a Moog synthesizer and started playing synthesizer drums. And I, you know, I think was one of the first guys to do that. And, you know, Todd was, he was open for that. He would say, okay, well, let's try it. 
And, you know, it didn't sound great on everything, but, you know, we'd find a couple of, you know, parts of songs where it really worked. And, go ahead. There was plenty of room for creativity in that gig versus probably what you were doing with Bette Midler, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that and was did, a lot of fun. Did Moogie have something to do with you getting involved with her at all? Didn't he? He's had some, you know. He was involved in, in most of my musical life. Uh, you know, he knew, uh, I, I believe he was, you know, instrumental in, in introducing me to Bette in the first place. Because uh, I, I guess I there was a whole group of people that all kind of knew each other. I was friendly with Moogie, friendly with Buzzy Linhart, and then I became friends with Bet. And then you know I left Bet and I went with Buzzy Linhart for a while, and he was friends with Moogie. And then I started you know playing in a band with Moogie and Ralph and and John Siegler. And I, I guess one day uh, Todd asked Moogie to put a band together for him for Utopia. But he wanted it, didn't want it to be just you know quite the same, and we had been experimenting you know with a lot of fusion stuff and kind of jazzy funky kind of things, and uh, so basically Moogie took the whole band and went over to Todd and said you know what do you think about this? And the rest is history. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, awesome. So you helped Moogie with Freak Parade, right? Yes, yeah. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So you and Moogie go back now. You got any road stories? We were talking about the the lifestyle and all that. And you don't uh, you don't have to tell too much information, but you got any funny road stories back back in the day? So, something you guys did, or uh, I would say recall? here's the most here's the most. I don't know if it's spectacular, but I think the most what to me was the most unusual. So we were traveling uh, by plane up to some college in the northwest, and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. So we end up getting to the college, and our equipment, which traveled by bus, had not gotten there. So here we are. We have, uh, you know, acoustic instruments, no synthesizers, and I have a drum pad and my drum pedal. So Todd goes out and asks the audience, you know, do you want us to come out and just play with what we got, or should we cancel the concert? So, of course, they all screamed and yelled and wanted Todd to come out. So I guess Todd played, you know, an acoustic guitar, and I took my drum pedal and I attached it to a garbage can, and I put a mic on my drum pad, if you can imagine, an old rubber drum pad. And I forgot exactly what the other guys had. You know, I guess it was a piano, and somehow we got the bass hooked up, and we just played, you know, I guess was what you would call unplugged but not even with real instruments, you know, just sort of not quite the real thing. And so we played for, I guess, about an hour, and then all of a sudden, or finally, the equipment shows up. And, you know, Todd asked the audience, well, you know, do you want us to take a break, and we'll set up the equipment, and we'll come back, you know, with everything? And, of course, they went wild. So we took a break. They set up the, you know, the sound system as quick as they could. And then, you know, it took a little bit, but we, then we went out and did a full, you know, electronic show, and you know they they went crazy. And one of the kids probably came up with the idea for Stomp. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got a call. Let's take that. See if somebody wants to ask you some questions. Three zero four, okay. you're with us. Yep. Hey, Doug. How you doing, bud? I'm Tony doing Rogers well. here. Hey, man. Tony Rogers in West Virginia, man. How are you guys? Very good. Doing well. Kevin Elman, yeah. uh, glad to have you you on. Hey, I remember seeing you. I don't know if you, mentioned, you guys have mentioned it tonight. I haven't heard much about 
much of it, but it was real, it was a real nice treat to see you when uh, Todd came around on the trio tour to do that thing on TV. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That was real. That was that was really fun. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Was that uh, how how long had you been playing the Seven Rays by the time you exited the uh, band and 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 Willie came in? Because everybody knows the the, original, the version on Another Live uh, had Willie on it. That was a thing from the first tour he did. But you actually were on the television show playing a version of it, and I actually liked the arrangement you did, the one that you guys did a little bit better than the than, than the final version. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I hate to admit it, but I. It's a kind of a haze. <laughs> I don't. I don't really remember that. I mean, I remember you know doing some of the TV shows, and I remember the song, but I don't remember you know how or why it was different. Okay, I just. I how how long had that been in the set? I mean, was that something you'd played live for a long time, or was that relatively new at, at the time you did the TV show? Yeah, by the time we did that, it was it was relatively new, which is why it's not burned in my brain. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember? Uh, is, do you remember how the? Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe the recording process when you guys did the uh, icon? I, I I'd heard other band members say that they were shocked to co- that when the thing had vocals on it at the end. Were you did Did you know that it was going to be all put together in in, in one big long uh, piece like that, or was it kind of grouped together from uh, smaller things? Well, we knew that the intention was to put it together in one long piece, uh, but it was you know each one of those pieces was written by a different member of the band or a different pair of members of the band, and some of that material was you know music we had done before we would we were with Todd. So when I was talking about some of the jam sessions we had with the you know with the Moogies group before we all got together, this had all been material that we had been jamming on and working on, you know. For a couple of years before we met Todd, and kind of all came together at that time, uh, we recorded each piece separately, uh, but we then we purposely developed some transitions so we could transition from one to the other. But we never we never recorded it as one long piece. So you can imagine the rehearsals that we had to go through when we were you know getting ready to go on tour, trying to learn all that music. And go and play it, you know, nonstop from one to the other, and some of that music was very hard. Oh my, it is. You know, it's challenging. And and when I, you know, two things are interesting. One is when I met Todd on TV to play, uh, you know, after having the reunion, after having not seen him for 25 years, I said to him in the in the dressing room, "So what are we going to play? I haven't, you know, I haven't played in ages. What are we going to do?" He says, "Oh, you know, it'll all come back. You don't worry about it." And then, I started, then I started getting really nervous. I go over to you know the, the bass player and I say, well, you know, can you hum? What are we going to play? Because I, I can't remember. He says, oh, I think we're going to play the icon. Don't worry, it'll come back to you. And I'm like, the icon. And I can't remember. I'm going the icon, the icon. I sort of remember, but I can't remember how well, it goes. Well, you know, Kevin, I think the funny thing about that is, is I think they whipped out an, an arrangement that they didn't do when you were in in the band. You did the long version and. And I think they played the shortened version that they played, you know, when they joined it up with the Seven Rays with the Four Piece Utopia. Exactly. So I don't think you had I don't think you had, had, had ever played that version before, and it's, it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of so, kind of funny. If the, I can see you can tell that on TV, you're, they, they they go to one section and you, and you can see you look look at Todd, and and, and then I think then you realize that you know it's kind of funny. Yeah. So you know what what happened was though is as so I, I said to 
you know, we didn't have any time. So we get on stage and I'm freaking out. I'm going like, I, oh my God, I'm about to embarrass myself on national television. They're going to count it off. And I'm not going to remember how it goes. What am I going to do? And all of a sudden, Todd goes, ready, one, two, one, two, three. And it all comes back to me in a rush. And I just almost automatically started playing it. Wow, and that's hard. To, something that complicated, that's hard, that's hard to believe. You hadn't played drums in a while, had you? I, heard. I hadn't played right? in a while, but I played that song so many times that it was just like in my, like, you know, like riding a bicycle. It was in my blood. Unbelievable. That's, that's fantastic. That's, that's uh, you know, that's uh, got to be a, a lot of people's favorite thing. Hey, have you ever heard, I have a, another comment to make. I play drums myself. I used to be a subscriber to Modern Drummer Magazine and, right. and read with all these drummers. Not that I was ever a big fan of them, but I think they were heavily influenced by you guys. It was a band Rush. Have you ever had the occasion to talk to Neil Park? Because he's made a, a couple comments in print before that your drumming on that first Utopia album is some of his favorite drumming he's ever heard in rock. Well, I've never spoken with him, but I did read that article, and I did, you know, and I and then one of my friends, one of the bass players I played with, said to me, you know, Neil copied a lot of your licks. I said, you're kidding me. So he says, here, I'll play them for you. So he played, you know, he played a couple of uh, songs where, you know, they were obvious, exact copies of some of the things that I played on the Utopia album. But you know, I was very you know, flattered that he, you know, liked my playing that much and uh, liked it enough to, you know, use it. Well, yeah, I think a, a lot of people, uh, you know, consider, you know, the people in the uh, harder rock edge, I still still think that he's, you know, one of the top top drummers there is. That's a great compliment. Okay. Uh, i I got to get off here in, in, in a second. I'm, I'm headed out, but I just wanted to ask you one more, one more question. Uh, do you remember... Uh, do you remember ever guesting with the band between the the? Uh, uh, I mean, I know you played a little bit since the time you got together with Todd on the uh, on the CNBC. But uh, did you ever play with Todd and those guys in between the time that you'd uh, left to go into business and uh, the time that you uh, came, you know, jammed with him then in two thousand? I did not play with Todd in all that time. I did play with Moogie a few times. You know, he and I have stayed in touch, and we've had some, a lot of fun together. Uh, but not Todd, no. Well, so have, have you? Are you still playing some now? I mean, you you still banging around a little bit? Yeah, well, more than a little bit. Uh, you know, I play, I practice regularly, and I play whenever the opportunity arises. And I'm in the process of trying to, you know, put together uh, a smaller group than I've had in the past because it's just a little easier to organize. But uh, yeah, I definitely I love to play, and I I don't ever want to stop playing. Well, that's good. We get up to New York sometimes, and I've, I have seen Moogie's show there, but before too, when I was up to see the uh, in, in-laws and such. It's good to uh, good to have you on here, Kevin, and and the good good much. luck to you. All Thank right, you we'll talk to you. Thank you. Okay, yeah. hey, Doug, tell, tell me a little bit about this weekend soon here. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll do, Tony. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you later, man. I'm All down. Right. To, we're back to the office, man. See you. Thanks for Bye-bye. calling in. All right, Tony Rogers. Tony Rogers was involved in the book about Todd. I don't know if you got to see that. You were mentioning it a few times. I did. Was he? What what was his involvement? Well, Billy James wrote it and consulted a lot with Tony, and Tony's Uh actually going to write a piece in the the second edition that's coming out. Oh, terrific! So uh, Tony goes way back. He knows a lot and has been a fan for a long time. Excellent. Did you Did you read the book then? I read the whole thing, of course. What'd you think? I thought it was a pretty accurate. You know, depiction of what happened at the, during the. You know, I think it was a good story, and it gave you a complete picture of what that 
time was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's. I'm looking forward to seeing the new one. Hopefully, it'll come out soon. It's going to be 77 to 87, but we're we're eagerly awaiting that one. We're actually hoping it come out in the summer. But uh, that's good. That's good. You like that? There's a a story in there that you may can talk about a little bit, maybe not, but that some of the guys had got together to to get Frog out of the band. Well, was that when you were around? Do you remember this? I do remember, yeah. So did the book get it right? I don't remember exactly how the book depicts it, but, you know, I mean, I thought Frog was a, you know, a very nice guy, and I thought that from time to time that, you know, he made an important contribution, but I didn't feel he had, you know, a solid enough, you know, musical foundation. So I thought a lot of the material was, you know, it was it was synthesizer competent, but you know I didn't necessarily feel that he made enough of a musical contribution to the band, and it was a little bit more, you know, kind of a show than and not a, not a, not enough substance. Mm-hmm. So I, I did support that decision. So to get somebody out of I mean, is that part of it a financial decision more because you're having to split you know split the pot I guess for lack of a better term at the shows or was it just more of a musical thing. I think it's a, it's more of a musical thing and more of a discussion. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know that there was, you know, I know that at, at some level, uh, you know, that for instance, my style of playing was very, you know, progressive rock and fusion style. And I, I know that from time to time, I know John felt, you know, he wanted to go more in a, you know, a, a pop, uh, you know, R&B style. And, you know, occasionally we had some discussions about, you know, you know, how should the music sound? You know, we had some differences of opinion about how it should sound. So I know that when, uh, you know, they picked Willie Wilcox, you know, they went in a different direction. You know, the band was not as heavy progressive rock anymore. Uh, you know, they weren't doing as, you know, crazy beats. You know, so they kind of went in a different direction. So... I mean, it's not unusual for a band to have differences of opinion about how the music should sound. I mean, not that's at all. Pretty common. Right, and the record companies with the band or with the individual artists. Yeah, a lot of sure. that goes on. We see it all the time. No biggie. Yeah, so that's normal. But, yeah, sure. So, yeah, he had. Uh, we talked about some of those kind of some of the some of those days back with Moogie and and uh, you know everybody's young and all kind of different things happened back then that you look back and you. You know, you never know. You just don't know if it was uh, <laughs> if it was all that important anymore, you know, or if it was, and if you made the right decisions, like we talked about earlier. But who were some of the influences that you had when you did decide to get into drumming? Well, I was very much influenced by you know Joe Morello and Buddy Rich, and then later on, I was heavily influenced by Billy Cobham, uh, you know, Tony Williams, some of the more uh, you know, fusion-oriented drummers. And I guess, you know, when I was younger, I definitely, um, you know, I was trying to do, you know, I guess flashier kind of things, and I wanted to do a lot of fills, and I wanted to play solos. And I think one of the things that has changed for me over time is that, you know, now I'm, I'm very happy just to play, you know, a good, solid groove. And, you know, I don't just have to... You know, still sounds good today. So Todd called you today and said, let's, let's do a little Utopia tour for a week or so. Would you be interested in doing that? 
Yeah, for a week or so, I definitely. For three months or so, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. A short tour would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. There's always rumors, different rumors about Utopia. Everybody wants to see them, you know. They may have to, you know, mix it up, go way back to the originals or the last four, however they want to do it. But that'd be right. great. It'd be fun. It would be a lot so, of fun. We talked a lot about Moogie and Frog, or a little bit about them. Uh, what can you tell me about John Sigler back then? What was your relationship with him? Well, I really, I think he was one of the all-time great bass players. Uh, I know recently, I think I got a note from him saying that he wasn't playing out anymore and he was kind of deferring any gig offers to his son. But he, he was a he was just an incredible bass player. And, uh, you know, when you listen back today, I mean, for instance, when we were trying to, when uh, we were working with Moogie, trying to do some of the, uh, you know, like, Freak Parade and some of his uh, some of those other tunes, and you listen to John's bass playing, and uh, you realize how special it was. You know, I think he was I think he was one of the one of the great bass players. I just it was a pleasure playing with him, and we always had a lot of fun. But we definitely had some differences of opinion about should it be you know simple and funky, or should it be you know totally progged out. You know, and that's just a question. You know, that's in some cases that's a decision for Todd to make. You know, he's quite a bit in Europe. Uh, he plays with uh, Henry Threadgill, who's a you know jazz saxophonist, and he plays with uh, uh, Jen Chapin. And what's interesting there is that she's the granddaughter of my drum te- my original drum te- teacher, who was Jim Chapin. And a lot of the it's uh, a lot of the stuff that he taught me. You know, I of course utilized in my music. <laughs> Excellent. So, what about Ralph Shuckett? What do you remember about him? Well, Ralph, I always felt was a, a, a ter- very, you know, a terrific, very funky keyboardist, and uh, I used to. I mean, I loved playing with Ralph, and uh, he was always in the groove and always played. Uh, you know, he had a great clavinet sound, and you know, he was just a pleasure to play with. Just, a, you know, I mean, every note that came out of him was musical and funky and in the groove and. He was a terrific player. Good times. It was good very times. good. It was a lot of a lot of great music. So now, music. is it true that you did some playing with Cab Calloway? I yeah. Well, when I was playing with Bette Midler, I was the you know her original drummer, and I played on the first album, and I did all those Johnny Carson shows, and I played with her at the Continental Baths. And one evening, uh, Cab Calloway was there performing. And basically, the, he used the uh, Ben Midler's backup band, and you know a lot of people don't realize that it, it, at the very beginning, with Barry Manilow was the piano player. <laughs> kind of worked out as the opening act for Ben Midler. Barry Manilow, he was all over Vegas doing shows over there. Yeah, still and, going. And he was a very, very solid, uh, you know, solid piano player and accompanist and musical director. He was very, very professional and together. All right, I got a question from Eddie in the chat room. He wants to know if you like MIDI drums, M-I-D-I. Is that how you say it? Yep, that's how you say it. Oh, well, but I practice on uh, a set of Roland V drums. And uh, so I don't know if that's exactly what he's referring to, but I've done a, I've done a couple of, I did a couple of albums with Moogie using uh, the Roland V drums, which are electronic drums. And I like them a lot. I like them a lot. And what I like about them is that you can 
easily, you know, change the sound. You don't have you don't have quite as much, uh, you know, flexibility as you would with a real drum. But you know, you can have one drum set and uh, you know a hundred different sounds or even more. So you can tune them to the to change the sound, and, you know, with just a few buttons if you want you to learn how to use it. And you can go from having a you know, country set to a jazz set to a big rock and roll set to a, you know, very kind of dead studio set, and you can change the cymbals. And so I use them a lot. I find them hard to use live because uh, they don't the, the different sounds don't seem to come across in the room as well as they do say in a studio. But for practicing and for studio work, in some ways, I prefer them. Very nice. So we got another person in the chat room. Uh, Chris Craddock wanted to know if you could elaborate a little bit about the Atlanta concert when y'all recorded the Utopia thing. Wow. Well, I don't. Re- I remember we had that whole week. We had been uh, trying to record Utopia, and I think we had had. I think we had recorded a few different evenings that didn't quite come together. And that wasn't an easy song, you know. A lot of changes and, you know, parts of it were pretty complicated. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't right, you can't use it. You can't splice a live show. So I do remember that evening where we're playing and we're all like praying, like, I hope nobody makes a mistake. Please don't screw up. And we get through the whole song and we hit the last note and we play the crescendo and everybody looks around and you can tell it's like, Yes, you know, I didn't make a mistake. <laughs> Ralph didn't nobody made a mistake and it sounded good. The sound man looks up and he gives us the high five and everybody's like, Whoa, finally we got that one in the bag. <laughs> so what would have happened if it wouldn't have happened? If it would have had us keep, keep, keep going, going the next night. Keep or, going and going. Yeah, recording yeah. everything back then, huh? I mean, eventually <laughs> we had to say, well, this is the best we can do. We'll, get, we'll use it. But yeah. fortunately, it came out to be pretty good. <laughs> All right. M. Wooden in the chat room wants to know what your favorite Todd Utopia song is that uh, you recorded and uh, which one you're most proud of. Well, I would say the the icon has, you know, the most, you know, probably displays the full range of what I can do. So I think that if I had to say to somebody, okay, well, here's an example of what I can do, you know, that would be a pretty good example, closely followed by Utopia, because uh, I felt, I really feel that that Utopia beat was, you know, an original, swinging, you know, great. You played uh, when you were with Utopia, what kit do you use now, what configuration? Well, I had two sets with uh, Utopia. The first set was a custom-made set of Slingerland drums uh, with a, you know, it was a standard size. I had a 20-inch bass. I had a, a 12, a 13, a 14, and a 16-inch tom-tom. Uh, it was a mahogany set with plain, you know, uh, plain wood. It all had all brass fittings, and uh, I had it made for me. And the snare drum I used was a, an old Black Beauty Ludwig snare drum that I bought on the road. All the symbols were uh, K Zildjian's, uh, and I believe it or not, I still have that set today. This was like the first tour. I still have that set. I still use it. Still sounds great. But during the uh, the second tour, I bought a set of pearl drums, and they I wanted a bigger sound. So this I believe had a 22 inch bass drum, 
And these were like 13, 14, 16, and 18-inch tom-toms. So everything was bigger. I used the same cymbals. But this was where I added the concert toms. So I had a row of, uh, I think it was uh, 6, 8, 10, 12-inch concert toms um, just mounted over the hi-hat. So that gave me a row of eight tom-toms so I could do these long you know, tom-tom fills. And that, would, that became one of my signature sounds. This is one of the things that used to drive John Siegler crazy because he used to stand right next to me and his ear, gigantic two bees, which were like these giant parade sticks, because the, uh, you know, the, the uh, onstage monitors weren't that great in those days. And to really get that punchy feeling that I wanted, to feel like I was really hitting the drums, I had, I had to hit them really hard with really heavy sticks. Uh, today, you don't really have that problem as much because the monitor systems are better and you can hear yourself better. But in those days, I used gigantic 2Bs, and now I use mostly 5Bs. Mostly 5Bs, okay. Somebody want me to ask you about the daily drum workout. Ah. <laughs> well, I'm actually getting ready to write that either in a book or I'll post it on a website or somewhere. But I'm going to, uh, you know, over the years, I've kind of refined a workout. Some of it's from, you know, kind of standard books like Stick Control, uh, and some of it's from exercises that Chapin gave me, and some of it's just things that I kind of come up with myself. But basically, I go through, you know, a routine of all the rudiments and uh, with a very strong emphasis on balancing both the left hand and the right hand, and then, you know, a series of exercises with the feet. You know, so I'm just keeping myself in shape, and uh, I'm planning to put that into a, you know, write it up and put it in a book so I can, you know, distribute it to people who want to get it. That would be nice. So well, when do you think you might be able to do that? Well, I'm in that, I just started writing it, so I'm going to yeah. start, you know, hopefully have it done before the end of the year. Awesome. I'm sure the drummer's out there excited about getting that. What did, uh, you mentioned earlier something about uh, a video behind the scenes. Um, where, do you know where that is now? What happened to well, it? Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, that was from like 1975 <laughs> or 1976. Uh, God knows where it is now. That was before video. It must have been an actual, you know, like eight millimeter film. Oh, really? <laughs> so I don't know what happened to it. That would have been yeah. something to keep. Wouldn't it? Yeah, it's always fun to find stuff like that, you know, if you can. So, all right, good deal. Somebody also was interested in um, what you thought about the path of Todd's career and where he is today and, and, you know, what you thought when you were playing with him back then, where he would go and if, if he, you know, did all the things that you thought he would be able to do with the talent that he had. Well, I guess I think the thing about, you know, Todd is that he, in some ways, was kind of before his time, you know, very innovative, very creative. And uh, I don't think he's received the recognition that, you know, he should or that's commensurate with his talent. Uh, you know, I think he's one of the great talents. I mean, uh, you know, he wrote a tremendous amount of material, sang great, played great. He could play all the instruments. He was a producer. He could be an engineer. You know, a real multi-talent in the same way that, like, you know, Prince is a super multi-talent, but, you know, in a different genre of music. So while I think he achieved a lot, I'm, you know, surprised that he did. Grass on guitar. And Rachel Hayden is a bass player, and Prairie Prince is a drummer, and he's 
adding Chasm Sultan's going to be a, a third guitarist as well as a keyboardist for him. Huh. And Chasm normally does his bass, of course, but uh, and they he sings very well direction. too. He what? He's going to be singing, I would imagine. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, this is they. I think one of the reasons that they got the bass player they did, Rachel Hayden, was because her, she has such a good voice. Ah. Um, she's a good bass player as well, but this new, this particular album has a, some background singing that they they needed to step up a notch, and she does a good job with that. And Chasm, of course, has a good voice, so. It's been a good it's been a good tour. They had another guy named Matt Bolton that was doing the keyboards and guitar from Hawaii and he was doing a good job, but Kaz is through with Meatloaf and was ready to come back, so huh. I think they've moved him because Rachel was so popular with the crowd, you know. I think that's the first female he's ever had tour with him in that type of setting, you know, as a, as an actual instrument, not just a backup singer or background singer. So, yeah. That it's sounds good. But I don't I don't think there's any I don't see any significant trend to invest in right now. So I'd be very, very careful. You know, uh, I would do one of two things. I'd either, I'd either consider, you know, investing you know, a little bit every month and over the course of the next year so that, uh, you know, you don't make a big mistake and put all the money into the market at once. But I'd be very, very careful about making any new investments right now uh, you know, in, in the stock market, because I think, you know, I think it's going to be choppy for a while. So how much of a difference does it make or does it make any when the president's decided here soon on what route you take for investing? Is that something that's taken into consideration heavily? Well, I think it's definitely something that's taken into consideration heavily, but what's not really apparent yet is what policies each president would follow. I mean, we think that if Barack Obama was elected president, that, you know, probably there'll be some, you know, maybe higher taxes or there'll be some tax, you know, taxing the the, the higher income or, you know, richer uh, citizens of America and try to pass some of that money onto, you know, middle income people or lower income people. Uh, I don't think there's, you know, certainly there won't be any tax relief. So, uh on the you know the the textbook answer is that usually you know, a lot of people think that Democrats aren't good for business, but you know certainly at the moment the Republican you know party hasn't had a great. But I think we're going to have to just wait and see until the person becomes president and until they start making some changes. You know then you can start to make some intelligent decisions. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned the real estate market. Did you have a lot of clients that were eager to get into that? And did they? Did you have some that had some have some issues? I did not. So uh, we didn't have any real problems in that area. Yeah. So we didn't. Yeah, I have to say we had nobody who got hurt by the real estate market. Hmm. That's very good. It it seems to be a lot of that. It seems to be in pockets. You know, it's not necessarily all. I mean, I know it's nationwide, but some of the places got really hit hard, like South Florida, for example. But we're here up in in New Jersey, and while I don't think prices have gone up, it it hasn't been hit hard. I mean, you know, certainly if you went to sell your house today, it's probably worth a little less than last year, but not dramatically so. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, the people that I'm dealing with are business people, and they're, you know, fairly sophisticated, so, you know, they're not making kind of... So do you get into the city much, New York? Uh, Sometimes, uh you know, I guess I've gotten to the point where the, the traffic annoys me, uh, you know, so I, I try to go in the city only at convenient times, so I try to avoid rush hour. And, 
you know, but we go in for time to time, obviously for gigs, and you know, occasionally to see clients, and uh, occasionally to go out to dinner and stuff like that. So, do you go see other bands nowadays, or are you just pretty much the only time you're in a place like that is if you're performing? Well, I love to see bands. You know, when the opportunities arrive, I mean, I, I love to see other musicians play, and I love to see. Of course, my favorite thing is to watch other great drummers play. Yeah, it's a, I love that because you, know, you get ideas, you get inspired. You know, you start thinking, "Hmm, that's a good idea. I should try that." <laughs> Do you put your set in front of the stage now, or is it in the back? It's still in the back, but it's raised up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so people can see me. But you know, the singers—I usually put the singers in front. Yeah. So you don't do any lead singing? Unfortunately, I never really had a very good singing voice. Or if I did, I never discovered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, the drummers sometimes get, you know, depends on the situation, but they, they are in the back and depends on how the stage is set up and all that good stuff. Sometimes they're not, you know, don't get as much love and attention. And then some of them, of course, hold new ball game. I think I've heard a rumor that Neil Pert, we talked about him earlier, which I, I love Rush and I, I like Neil, but the... Uh, that a lot of his kit, his drum set, a lot of the stuff he didn't even use. It was more for show. You know, he has this elaborate clash. Right. So, and I still, you know, and to me, the mark of a really good drummer is someone who can play with, you know, just a standard old four-piece kit and make it sound like music. Mm-hmm. So, who is your favorite drummer? Eddie was asking me in the chat room. I think one of the most, and I have to say, the uh, my standard for drummers is someone that's very musical. So, I mean, for instance, uh, and I, you know, I started in a different era. So, I mean, Joe Morello was one of my favorite drummers. And uh, I think Steve Gadd is a great drummer. I love Dave Weckl. Uh, but, you know, someone who can make music on the drum set, you know, is different than just someone who can, you know, play the drums. It's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you mentioned the the four-piece set, which... And again, I'm not a drummer, but I, I watch. Look at the Rolling Stones, and it, and the drum kit is, you know, not very impressive, and it looks like it's almost too easy. I mean, is that the kind of drummer you're talking about, or is he, you know, just got a good drummer or not? Well, I mean, the most important thing about it, uh, the the drums, of course, is they got to have great time. So, you know, the the groove has got to be, you know, absolutely rock solid. So. You know, to me, the first sign of a great drummer is can he can he make an entire audience and make it, can you make an entire stadium you know tap their feet, snap their fingers mm-hmm. by yourself? I mean, that would be like you know that would be one of the great tests of a drummer. And uh, and then you know, can you hear the music? Can you hear the song and what he's playing? You know, it's got to so you know some drummers will just play things that I call their drumistic. You know, they'll play rudiment so they'll play a paradiddle but they won't necessarily play something that sounds like the song so one of the things that i was trained to do is sing and and sing something and then play it so i'm always conscious and if and you know i try to make my drum part and some of it you don't like this popular maybe well one of the things that i you know i have two teenage i have a you know two teenage kids and i have some kids in their 30s, and one of the things that in our family is when we uh, have birthdays and Christmas, we you can't buy you're not allowed to buy anybody something. So you have to make you can only you can only give a gift if you've made it. 
So we give each other cards that we make. We write poems. We give each other pictures. And also CDs of our favorite music. So, for instance, my kids will give me a CD of music that they like, that they think I'll like, um, you know, for my birthday, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, I listen to a lot of, you know, certain hip-hop things, certain R&B things. I listen to a lot of, you know, kind of pop, popular Latin-type stuff. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, I'll listen to... uh, you know, all kinds of pop, you know, current music that's on, you know, that's out today. And uh, a lot of it, I don't know the names. You know, I just have my kids download it for me from, uh, you know, on iTunes, and then I listen to their music. So uh, I try to keep current with what's happening. Yeah, that's it's, it's tough to keep up. There's so many uh, different groups out there now, and they're all marketing a different way. It's definitely changed a lot since the utopia days and even really 10 years ago how the whole business has changed yeah. the whole, i mean the whole business has changed yeah. so do you play any other instruments other than drums i played the vibes a little bit and there was a time when i was a teenager that i got tired of carrying my drums around and i took up the flute instead <laughs> <laughs> yeah you spend much time on that or is it mainly drums i guess mostly the drums i really like the drums i love it i love All playing right. the drums Okay, i got to ask you a question. They're hounding me in the chat room about this. This is Cruiser Mel, who's lost her voice, can't call in and ask, so I'm going to have to ask you for you. Okay. For her, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's kind of a unique question, and you're going to have to think way back and delve into the past. And, of course, you could even discuss it now if you're doing any touring outside of your local area. But she likes to figure out how you guys do your laundry when you're on the road, especially like that five nights a week. You know, it's funny that you mention that because I have no recollection of how the laundry got done. I know that I didn't do it. Uh, we ha- we had somebody who was with us who, you know, we actually we wore makeup every night. Oh yeah. So there was a period of time uh, where we all had you know crazy makeup, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm pretty and we had costumes. So I'm pretty sure that the person who did the makeup and the costumes took care of all, all the laundry. Because I certainly did. I mean, I, I I certainly didn't go to a laundromat to do the laundry, and we didn't stay in hotels long enough to, uh, you know, to leave your laundry there overnight. So uh, yeah. I guess somebody did the laundry for somebody us. Somebody did. Now was Nicky Nichols around when you, back then? I think that's who it was. <laughs> I think that's who it yeah. was. Nicky's a character. We had him on the show. Did you really? Yeah, he's uh, uh he was funny. He was the one who did all Todd's glam stuff, and yeah. And then I do remember one day I just. I, I, we just decided we're not wearing makeup anymore. We never really discussed it. We just showed up on stage with no makeup, and Todd never said anything. And just all of a sudden, we were not wearing makeup anymore. Yeah, I remember. I think Moogie was telling us that story. You know, he just kind of decided you know he didn't like it, and just one day everybody kind of, I guess, rebelled or mutiny on the bounty or something. Just decided not to wear it, and then it just stopped. Never yeah, but it wasn't like stuff. a whole. It wasn't like a. Hey, Dennis, with your time, and I appreciate you being on. We had a lot of requests to get you on. People want to know what you're up to and talk a little bit about the Utopia days, and you've done a great job doing that. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. When I get my book squared away, I'll give you a holler, and uh, maybe we can help me promote it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We love to promote on here. We'll mention it on the show and maybe do a little promo piece for it. Oh, great. That would be yeah. fun. I would pre- really appreciate that. All right, man. Thanks. Have a nice right. night. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Pleasure. Kevin Elman, everybody. Bye. With the Utopia. All right, Rockwell says I'm losing my accent. It's just because I've got an allergy situation going on. Uh, let's.
let's play a little bit of the Utopia theme since Kevin was talking about it and liked it so much. Here we go. Thank <laughs> you. 